Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. In spite of all the weird ways the word has been abused since the 2016 elections, I think of myself as a liberal. As a basic value, I try to be open-minded, and like many liberals, I live in a big liberal city where I rarely meet anyone who doesn't share my values, religious outlook, and political beliefs. As a result, like it or not, I'm in a bubble. And when I'm not being careful about it, I'm vulnerable to seeing the Bible Belt and the entire American South as one monolithic, mostly white, evangelical, anti-abortion, Christian right-leaning mass, as some kind of living history exhibit of a past us New Yorkers have left behind. And I know lots of people in some of the same bubbles I occupy who are quick to point to religion as the cause of horrors throughout human history. People who see reason and science as progress, religion as unequivocally retrograde, and who point to data showing that people everywhere are getting less religious as a hopeful sign that humanity might be moving in the right direction. But just as it doesn't have a monopoly on morality, religion doesn't have a monopoly on intolerance. And reason alone can't give us values like love and kindness. Religion's one of many ways that people organize their lives, and like everything we make, it's subject to both our courage and our cowardice, the best and the worst of us. A recent Pew survey says that 63% of Americans believe in God. In Bible Belt states like Oklahoma, where that number is much higher, there are fierce political battles going on for control of the Christian narrative, pushback against fundamentalist interpretations of the Bible as aligned with conservative Republican values. These battles, invisible to most of us out here on the coasts, are the subject of American Heretics, a powerful new documentary by my guests today, Janine and Catherine Butler. Welcome to Think Again, Janine, Catherine. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Had you all had much connection with that region of the country? Had you spent much time there before making this documentary? So this is Janine, and I'll say that we had not had much knowledge about Oklahoma. We hadn't spent any time there. I think our first time there was for the film, and I'm speaking with the collective we. Maybe Catherine's been to Oklahoma, but I don't think so. Growing up, our my father was stationed in Oklahoma, and so we would hear stories like that when they were first married and that kind of family lore, but that, okay. that was really it. You had a military father, but you didn't travel around with, we, with him. He just served for a couple years, okay. you know, early on. We both grew up in the shadow of Washington, D.C. and the Capitol and very steeped in Washington politics and things like that. Both our parents were civil servants. They didn't work in politics, but it was just yeah, it's where every, they grew everywhere. up and that's where we grew up. And Yeah, for the listeners, I, I grew up around there, too. Too, so I know, yeah, I mean, politics is, is thick in the air, like it's the humidity town. of that part of the country. Yeah. And politics plays a big role here as well. You know, I mean, we want to, when I want to be tolerant about people's kind of religious values and beliefs, I want to, in a sense, separate them from politics. But in that region of the country, it's not, it's really not possible for historical and other cultural reasons, yeah? Yes, and I would say that it's not possible really for any regions of the country. And that's one of the real eye-opening things that we looked at when we dug into the research, because we always think of ourselves as the separation of church and state. And this isn't going to be new to people that are well-versed on the subject, but for us, it's like, wow, the entanglement and the deep dive into the context and the history, it's like, it's so interwoven. And I don't think that that's a bad thing to talk about. I think that's a good thing to talk about. You know, the country is founded with an intention of religious freedom. It's founded by people that are running from religious intolerance. So religion is at the very heart of the nation. But 
as one of your guests in the documentary, and you can tell me the, the name because I'm not sure I remember, points out even George Washington, the, found, the founders of the country, talked very explicitly about the fact that tolerance and pluralism with respect to religion, that, that's, that's part of the fabric of the nation. That's supposed to be what we're about. And you're absolutely right. And that was Dr. Robert Jones from the Public Religion Research Institute. And also um, Rob Boston talks a little bit about it. And he's from the Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. And they 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 both really love the history and they sort of build their expertise also on looking at the different dynamics of of how religion weaves together with politics and legislature and laws and things like that, even though it stays separate, but it's always that it's always a little bit of a battle. Yeah. So I mean Christianity in Oklahoma, generally speaking, and in a lot of the a lot of the South and a lot of what we call the Bible Belt. And when I say Bible Belt, I don't even know what I'm talking about. Is it like <laughs> a third of the country. I have no idea where exactly that belt is meant to be. Do you know? <laughs> I mean, I mean Br- Brandon Scott that says one. that they're the buckle of the Bible belt. And, th- and that has kept us, we we're always like, okay, so that's the buckle. So where's the belt? I don't know. I, I Catherine? <laughs> you know, I think it's fair to say that it's um, <laughs> south of the Mason-Dixon line. Okay. All right. so, <laughs> I think it runs basically from like the southern states through to Texas, but probably need to fact check that yeah, for sure. sure. So anyway, there's a big swath of the country that right. gets kind of lumped into this. And, and in those places, like I think it's also fair to say that a lot of evangelical Christianity, maybe the majority of it, has kind of aligned, aligned itself with what I think it would be fair to call intolerance, you know, in spite of the religious pluralistic beginnings of the country and in spite of Protestantism's original reaction, you know, as an attempt to kind of bring Christianity back to the people and make it more open and and, and so on. This is Catherine. And I think, you know, I think that's what we found so interesting because we had no idea all these different factions, you know, of the Protestant religion, of Christian religion in general in this country. Um, And the fact that, you know, we go into that section where we talk about how evangelicals are kind of come out of that tradition of as Brandon Scott mentioned, soul savers. Right. So they have a really different idea about being saved and having um, Jesus be your Lord in Christ. And but all, all these different communities have their own their own interpretation based on a book, the Bible, right. that very few, as Dr. Scott again says, it's rarely looked at in its historical context. We're not walking in the shoes of the people who wrote it or the times in which they, it was written or compiled. And right. so it's a means of gathering community, and those communities are have very strong feelings. <laughs> and, and and as I think I think it was Dr. Scott maybe who said this, you can correct me, but that you know even the canon of both the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible are, you know, miscellaneous writings from different locations, different authors that were never, never expected to be, find themselves lumped together in a canon. And once they come together in a canon, there then becomes this attempt to create a sort of like internal coherence and internal cross-reference and whatever, which results in something different from possibly what some of those original communities and the historical figure Jesus might have intended. So this is Janine, and I'll, I'll <laughs> and say And I know we're that, going deep into theology here. No, and no, I know no, that's but just, your, just, 
just the, so I'll, I won't speak about it as a <laughs> theologian or an expert, just as somebody who had the benefit of being on the other end of these conversations with people like Dr. Scott, that is an expert in this area. And some of the things that kept going off in my head for light bulb was one context, 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 where if you're going to look at these passages, you have to, it's like everything in life, right? And as storytellers, you have to build the context of the scene and the situation around it to fully understand it. Right. And to your point about exclusion, it really came together for me when Dr. Scott talks about, and he goes in depth a little bit about this with the Nicene Creed, but at right, some right, point, right, right, right. right, right, he does, and we let him go. We just let Nicene him talk. Nicene Creed, that's, um, so again, that's uh, Constantine, is it, who it's brings that together? Constantine in the late Roman Empire brings together all the, because he's thinking about having Christianity become the formal religion of the Roman Empire, but Christianity is you know, a thousand voices talking in tongues in 20 billion directions. And so brings them all together, essentially locks them in a room, won't let them out and is like, figure out what you all agree on. That's how Brandon puts it, which is so fun. But then when he talks about, then it becomes the, the Christian movement, which was a Jewish reform movement, then becomes exclusive rather than inclusive. So the lines are drawn there. And so it just made me think of that when you said, mm. well, we categorize evangelicals as being judgmental or, you know, ex exclusive. But it is interesting that it goes way back and really starts with Constantine. You know, and this happens again and again in human environments where people start to get tense and focused for one reason or another around like, what is it we're really talking about here? What is this thing we call, you know, America? What is this Christianity? And in that case, it's in, it's in a context and as it is so often, I think, of politics and power. The Roman Empire looking for cohesion at a moment in its history in the late Roman Empire when it's starting to kind of fragment and and so reaching for something coherent and that's when you get the like this is us and and that's mm -hmm. them i guess you know it's also it's always good to remember too that church is a focusing point for many many small communities across america yeah so it's kind of the lifeblood of the community there are a lot of people that gather there you know there's so much that happens around their life around the church and it becomes that kind of part of of their community and and i think we on the coasts perhaps are not always cognizant or recognizing that that is still a really large part of small town america that's right and so in the interest of moving away from grand generalizations i want to talk about some of the nuance that you all get at in american heretics which is you're looking specifically at things that are happening within what can broadly be called evangelical Christianity, though there are different churches, different communities in the South, although I'm not sure Unitarians are considered evangelical, but we can come back to that, but that are definitely kind of problematizing this, this notion that it's all a single monolithic Republican conservative bloc. This is Janine. I think that what we discovered in Oklahoma when we started spending a little bit more time with Dr. Scott, with, with Robin Myers, with Reverend Myers and Reverend Walkie, as we started the exploration and development, we started to see that maybe Oklahoma could be an interesting place to talk about the broader issues that are across the country because one, it's unexpected, these groups in Oklahoma that are just as passionate, they're very passionate about sort of reclaiming the conversation and they're brave. 
especially Lori, I believe, and and and, let's, and Representative let's, Walkie. They're brave. Let's talk a little bit. Let's let's uh, give people uh, just kind of a, a quick overview of some of the heroes, so that they know who we're talking about. Robin and and Lori and I'll start, and then Catherine can probably fill in some of the blanks too. But it's Dr. Reverend Robin Myers. He's written quite a bit. He's been out there as a very as a social activist and a voice for the liberal Protestant faith. He comes from the the UCC community. And he really did start in Oklahoma City. He formed a liberal Protestant church 30 years ago. He and his wife were very brave to do it. They came in, they wanted to change the conversation in Oklahoma City. They really wanted to open it up to more progressive values. They were among the first to marry gay and lesbian couples in the church before it was legal. And so Robbins really spent a lot of time building this community. And over the past few years, he brought on an associate pastor, Reverend Lori Walkie, who she herself has such a great story. She was born and raised in Oklahoma. She was very involved in the church, Southern Baptist community. And as she will tell you, her life revolved around the church. And as she grew and went off to college, she was a basketball star. One thing she doesn't really talk about is she she was Oklahoma's beauty queen, and I think that's mm-hmm. how she paid for her law school. She has a great story about that. She started to see a world that was bigger than the one that she had been raised in and started searching and asking questions. There's a beautiful, and I think, I, I always think about this. I always think about, you know, when I think about religion and I think about the, you know, some of the tensions and the judgment and all the things that can happen, I, I think about families as an interesting nexus of how it changes and the conversation, you know, and Lori, there's a beautiful segment in the film with Lori and her grandmother. They clearly have a very close connection. Her grandmother obviously is the one who gave her much of her Christian faith and taught her songs and so on. But it's also clear that they have some political differences around these the the LGBT community and the, these things, and to see that see that love and see that dialogue and see people both identifying uh, with the Christian Church but taking different directions and not in silence with one another, keeping the dialogue open. I think that's so central to kind of what you're trying to do with this film. That That is a great moment that really does summarize the, the larger goal. And just for the record, we'd like to just say that we thought Lori's grandmother was very brave. Like she was very brave to do that, to, to allow us into her home, to allow us to bring our cameras in. and. Certainly, it was you know it was not set up or directed in really any kind of a way. It was very documentary. You know, right. it's like just let them have a conversation and talk about the newspaper articles that had come out. I th- we thought that was pretty pretty great. I think courage is is kind of basic to keeping any kind of conversation open across difference. I think I think that it's fear that basically divides people. I mean, when there are these silences, when there is this sense of like you know, like I was describing in the intro of, oh, that's those people and maybe they'll evolve eventually or some whatever. Yeah, I think it's courage that that has the possibility to break through that. And that was really the driving force behind making this film because we thought nobody's having the conversation anymore. I mean, Lori and her grandmother, that moment, you know, when she said, you know, what matters is she cared enough to ask. 
Right. She cared enough to ask, and she can listen. And everyone we met, again, we were not familiar with Oklahoma. We spent a year going back and forth, dropping into their lives, which they were amazing to give us this access to, come into their lives, their congregations. Even our crew in Oklahoma, they would sit in interviews, and they would be just, wow, nobody ever told me this. I'm not alone in how I think. I'm not alone and I have these questions, you know, where I can't reconcile some of the more closed views with how I really feel, and yet my faith is really, really important to me. And I think that's what we we thought, if we could get to that, if we could tell this story and let people see themselves in it and have that conversation, then we did our job. That was something I thought about while watching the film, was about how Reverend Robin Myers. Myers, that he essentially was offering an alternative to people that may not have existed before or that they weren't aware was even open to them within Christianity, an interpretation and a way of practicing and a way of being that didn't require them to abandon their faith, but that would allow them to be maybe more in alignment with values that they might have. And that was where my critical mind kicked in and thought, that becomes necessary in an environment where everyone is looking to authority. This is a very open Christian church. And the scholar you interview, he quotes passages where Jesus is saying, like, why not think for yourself? Why not use your own reason, etc.? But still, this is an environment in which authority matters so much, and someone has to give you permission to go a different way. Well, exactly. I mean, when everything became dogmatized, uh, this would be something Dr. Scott alludes to, then a lot of the freedom to let these ideas grow and become a part of the community in which the time reflects the changes in that kind of thinking or can go back and refresh that concept of those universal values, treating one another with kindness, caring about your fellow brothers and sisters. All of that becomes sort of secondary to the the larger institutional direction. And there's a couple ways that were shown in the film, like why that has happened, a couple reasons. One is a shift, a historical shift in those, primarily in evangelical churches, toward faith and belief as the crucial thing as opposed to action in the world. So when you're focused on action in the world within a Christian theology, that has to be about generosity, that has to be about community, has to be about love. When you're focused on belief, then it's it's just about trying to determine, you know, are we all on the same page? Is this person a heretic, etc. And then this political history, which goes back to slavery. And I, I thought we can maybe talk a little bit about that, about how those churches emerged and how they ended up aligning themselves with the Republican Party and with a specific set of values that may or may not be anchored in historical Christianity. Why those churches formed the doctrine that they did, we can't speak to that. Sure. But we can look at it as just from the point of view of a time in our country where the abolitionists were were on this end, the Southern slave-owning party were on this end, and, and it became a And at that time, cultural... the Southern slave-owning party were also Democrats. Exactly. Right. I, I just think it's really important, and this is something that came up in a conversation last year with uh, Jill Lepore, who's a historian that just wrote a vast and wonderful history of the U.S. and, and kind of a new kind of history, like a new, a new voice, I think, of, of writing telling our story 
where she was talking about the way Republican Party strategists, specifically PR guys who used to be on Madison Avenue in the six, late 60s going into the 70s, started to really divide and conquer and sort of align Southern Christianity with anti-abortion values, anti-LGBTQ, and along racial lines as well. So that's a modern political emergence that was very much manipulated for the sake of getting votes. So it's Janine. The only thing I'll say about that is I'm sorry that I didn't know this before, but I didn't. But as we went into the research and Robert Jones in his interview talks about the fact that the Southern Baptist Convention actually affirmed the Roe v. Wade decision. Right until it became a political hot button issue and it was pushed down from the top, a wedge issue pushed down from the top. And we went looking for archival material, newspaper articles to support that they affirmed, you know, Roe v. Wade. It was really eye opening to me because I was just like an entire group of people have been completely kind of, you know, their thinking has been formed around the fact that this was a political agenda right you know and now there are other reasons that people might not have affirmed roe v wade other other religions other people that don't think that it's right but that one mass block it's like well wait a minute they said it was affirmed that's the thing i can't get over and and i wish that i had some of the people here who wouldn't talk to you for your for your documentary people from the churches that hold these beliefs But that's the thing that I can't get over, which is to say that I want to and I do respect people's individual right to and need for faith. I understand the way that religion can uh, be the heart of a community, and I think that that can be a very beautiful thing. But I can't get behind the blind following of authority, and I, I have to say that if people are finding their entire movement co-opted for political purposes, that's something that they should want to be aware of. That's hard to swallow and that's it's hard to respect. I mean, we're all vulnerable, so I, maybe that's how to respect it, right? Which is that we're all vulnerable to that kind of manipulation. Well, we're all vulnerable, but we rarely have the bigger nuanced picture or the context. You mentioned um, Jill Lepore as a historian. I mean, we, uh, with Robert Jones, you know, we were drawn to his work through his book, The End of White Christian America. Mm. Brandon, I mean, we were given the opportunity, which is rarely given in a visual form and time, to actually weave all of this together for you to see. Right. We were just following the historical plot points. And the more we followed it, the more we were just amazed at how, as per usual, there's so much behind the scenes that are used to make people reactive and get them upset. Right. And maybe a lot of people, even with the context, it won't matter. They still, it's an, it's an emotional thing. And there's a loyalty it's, to and their church. And there's a loyalty, and so, yeah. exactly. But given the, the context, I, I just really hope that we kind of are able to give that out there and let other people have that conversation. Going back to Brandon Scott and this, you know, he's going back to the original texts and he's not, and and what's interesting and I think important is that he's not looking for a fundamental essence. This is not, you know, this is the right Christianity, but it is maybe if we look to these original texts, if we look into the historical context around them, 
at least we get a clearer picture of what some of these original messages were that have then been transformed in these in these other contexts. I mean, not you know, I think it's tricky to say like you're going to find the pure essence of Christianity or something, but maybe you can get closer to what some of the people who invented this philosophy and and way of life we're talking about and understand that you know <laughs> that there those were times in which people were pushing back against empire right. as well and they were gathering because they were being persecuted and and there were all of many forms of people coming together and going well there's got to be a different way they're coming out of slavery they're coming out of oppression right they're the Jews coming, coming out, out of, out of slavery exactly in Egypt and- they're female apostles they're I mean there's a much larger group and a broad diversity of voices that helped form this. Um, yeah, I was not aware the of, of the female apostles, and yes. I consider myself something of an amateur theologian. I, I had no and idea. And all of so. this gets you know, taken away under Constantine because Constantine, as Brandon says so well <laughs> and so cheekily, you know, locks them in a room without food and says, you better come to a decision. <laughs> right. And by the way, it better reflect the values of the Roman Empire. So women are out. It's all about empire. <laughs> it's all about empire. And the patriarchy. So that's what's right. been carried forward. And so it's a natural attraction for those folks leaving the ad guys from Madison Avenue to go, hey, this is using religion as a way to, uh, as a wedge for the powerful to keep people and... um, Sorted into a hierarchy. And and, and they, they point that out explicitly. It's talked about in the film that the church has been used as a structure to support patriarchy, to support white supremacy throughout history. You know, and to basically uh, support existing hierarchies from the perspective of those who were at the top of them. And that as those hierarchies start to get questioned, for example, America is becoming significantly less white than once it might have been, then you get war. People fight. And, you know, to speak to your point about how did all these churches get to be such closed systems, the one thing that I think we weren't able to get into as much is that, in a, according to our amazing characters who are deeply steeped in Christian theology, in America, when everybody came here for religious freedom, that also gave them the freedom to interpret the Bible any way they please. Right. I mean, Jefferson wrote his version of the Bible. Lincoln wrote his version of the Bible. And so a lot of these smaller churches even now... They have their own authority to interpret it as they will, because that is kind of baked into the system. So there's no church church. Right. There's a, you know many, many, many splintered so factions. So many denominations. So many denominations. Which is, which is we can't fine. Even get which, how many denominations there are and they're called that are under the Christian mm-hmm, banner. banner. Which is fine in the same way that pluralism uh, is fine if so long as people are talking to each other. The, when they stop talking to each other, right. then then each of these rigidifies into its own, you know, yes. So. M- autonomous, uh, autocratic authority. I think it's talking to each other and also giving, allowing for a platform for some of the, the lesser voices to be heard. And you had talked about vulnerability and you said, well, vulner, you know, everybody's vulnerable. And the one thing that we don't get into in this documentary, Bishop Carlton Pearson touches on it a little bit. We'd have to have many hours for this. It's just <laughs> the power of propaganda, the power of propaganda starting with the Roman Empire, but also going all the way, the the power of the Christian broadcasting network, the, the messages that are surrounding 
people in the evangelical community all day long is real and it's big industry and it's big dollars and we don't talk about that but somebody should yeah well (laughs) yeah it's big industry and when you're talking on that scale and this this comes up in the context of a conversation i'm going to be having soon with um jenny odell who's a an artist and a writer wrote a book called how to do nothing which isn't really about how to do nothing but um but it's about resisting the attention economy and it talks about Precisely that, that when you're talking on scale, when you're talking like on, you know, church TV, for example, to millions and millions of viewers, you are out of context. You are in a decontextualized space where the kinds of messages that play like on Twitter are going to be simpler, repetitive, not nuanced talking points. Absolutely. And and I think going back to your point of it's a shame that some of the folks in the other camps didn't speak to us. But a part of that is they're very, very clear about controlling their own message. Mm -hmm. And so we have been making documentaries for a long, long time, over 25 years. And we have never run into the sort of wall that said, no, thank you. Right. And so, and it it became clear to us that and the more we got into this, the more we realized, well, that that's and that was affirmed by our pastors right. that we interviewed that you know, that they were like, Well, of course they're not gonna talk to you. It's telling. What can you say? I mean, <laughs> that said, um, <laughs> our I guess our North American premiere of Heretics was at Mountain Film Telluride. And in the audience, you know, of course, and then after in the Q and A after, and people would come up to us afterwards, and there were a lot of very progressive evangelical faith groups that came to see it because they really were excited that another side of the evangelical story oh, cool. could be told, and that I think Catherine can speak to that too. I think that felt good. That felt good. Like okay, because we don't we don't want to just. This is the point. It is a point of view. It is a point of view of our characters, but we don't want to be equally exclusive. Right. I think that's what's most interesting and most valuable is those possible conversations at the margins. You know, you're not going to talk to the people that are just absolutely going to shut you out. They're not going to listen. Fine. But, you know, who are the people and where are the people who are kind of like on the fence where they're waiting for something like this. There were people that were coming up to us. They were very, it was very emotional. They were, they're, thank you for treating our world with respect. Mm. One of the young women, her mother worked for Oral Roberts. Okay. And she said, you know, so this is very personal to me. I feel differently, but you treated our world, our beliefs with respect. And, and and that wasn't that wasn't just us. That was Reverend Pearson. And I that mean, was he, Reverend Pearson. He has yeah, a great deal about of him. Yeah. For, he does. For Oral Roberts. Carlton Pearson, who, yeah, and that was news to me that like Oral Roberts had done something surprisingly progressive for the time in bringing Carlton Pearson on, who's African American, as a like was he like his successor essentially in the in the movement or According like just to a protege? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you that saw was, him as his successor, yes. And that was, you know, that was a not common in in Southern churches at the time at all. And Bishop Pearson, clearly, just by his storytelling, you know, had a, a great fondness and, and respect and love for Oral Robertson. So I think that it's his story. 
he speaks to it right. and it's quite genuine and um i think he he himself is somebody that allows us to also open the crack for these conversations of it's not it's not one camp or the other right you know it's a very complicated dance that many 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 people are trying to carry out in their daily lives if they are part of a faith community and their faith is really important to them but they are questioning they are asking questions and it's a journey that changes over the life mm-hmm. of an individual and a community so carlton reverend carlton he's running a massive Pentecostal church, mm-hmm. I guess, and then at some point comes to the conclusion that he doesn't, that hell doesn't exist, which is, you know, a heretical thing to say in that community. But he begins talking about this and he loses his most of his congregation, right? And he's very, like, he's, when he speaks in the film, he's very heartbroken about that. He feels very responsible for the harm that he unintentionally did to people in that community who trusted in him letting them down in a sense but that's the journey he went on and and then the journey gets even more interesting maybe we can talk a little bit about that because i think i think that is where things get very intersectional is you know the relationship between carlton pearson and then the unitarian church in tulsa the fun thing about um reverend pearson is is so so his story was covered by ira glass in this american life and his production company teamed up and they did a hollywood feature called come sunday and it, it really focuses on the split and so when we started talking to him, he phrases it as this is his come Monday story because mm-hmm. it's what happened after. Mm-hmm. Right. And as we understand it, you know, he, he loses his church. And as Reverend Marlon Lavenhar from the Unitarian Church in Tulsa tells us, he saw that Reverend Pearson was really being denigrated in the press and he really had lost everything. And he reached out to him and said, there's a lot of other people that think like you. And here we are right here in Tulsa and we do too. And the journey of those two together is, again, like we only touch on it in the movie. Right. But it's a phenomenal story that's been going on for 10 years where the, what was left of Reverend Pearson's congregation kind uh, of merges, merges with, with a very liberal Unitarian church, but a liberal Unitarian church that's also steeped in the culture of their location and their times. It's a very old church. Yeah. And, and, and again, know? let's be clear, is like very, you know, has in its founding is steeped in a history of racism in the in the region mm-hmm. and then and has gone through a journey of its own to arrive at this point Absolutely. where that merging is possible. And as some of the members in the at the end of our doc will tell you that joining of forces what does she say she goes it's the most divinely blessing that could happen to any congregation but she will also tell you that it was not easy. Mm. This was not an easy merging um, for all kinds of reasons that we all face all today, you know, I mean, we all, right. if we talk about it on the surface, that's one thing, but to really dive deep and to do the hard work that these that these people did in, in Tulsa is really admirable. Yeah, I mean, even if you could disregard the historical origins, simply a black church and a white church in the South coming together is a big thing. It's know? a big thing. Culturally. Like, oh, it's huge. huge. It's huge. It's huge. And, yeah. and all sort of, you know, headed up also by Reverend Marlon Lavenhar, who is really also extremely brave. I would imagine that some of these leaders that you profile 
in the film get death threats or at least some serious backlash from more conservative members of the community. Most definitely. Yeah. And and as Janine said, Bishop Pearson, he lost everything. The he Mayflower, was like homeless. He was homeless. Yeah, he was yeah. called his family like a homeless church family. And also, you know, Reverend Labenhar, what he's trying to do in, in creating this sort of amazing reconciliation and this recognition of of a past that is painfully tangled with the Tulsa race riots mm. based on the founder of their church, that they're building this brand new church that sort of is going to memorialize this horrific part of our own American history that not many people even know about, including um, one of our amazing characters, Nehemiah Frank, who's the editor of the Black Wall Street times. It's a young man right. who's in Chicago in a different church, and he starts to hear about the Tulsa race massacre. And he was like, wait a minute, I'm from Tulsa. What? I didn't even know that. And so it's like Brandon says, Oklahoma or either your past or your future, or not mm. sure which. <laughs> and Oklahoma, for us, as a character that we decided it would be a character in our film as well, is, is like a a microcosm of the larger macrocosm of America. I mean, all the issues around racism, around church politics, around um, small communities, um, liberal versus fundamentalist. The blurring of church the and state. The blurring of church and state. Yeah, yeah. It's in that fishbowl there. And and they and they they took us by the hand and they, they walked us into that. It's very interesting because it feels like in so many ways this is a moment in American history where, you know, after a couple centuries of, I mean, we still have progress mania in some parts of the country, Silicon Valley, whatever, but like after a couple of centuries of just like forward, 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 so many people in so many different ways are kind of looking back, unearthing the past and sort of mourning things that never had time that we never kind of gave space to mourn so that we could move on for real, you know, so that real progress could happen. During the course of this project, the events in Charlottesville, Virginia took place, and we witnessed many interfaith communities coming together as a call to action, and it was interfaith communities, interrace communities, so you had imams and um, rabbis and people representing from the Southern Baptist community coming together to call for social justice and action. And it was a poignant moment that to remind us that if these events can bubble up like this, they're so close to the surface that in moments like this, that the community, faith leaders, whatever your faith is, or non-faith, these are the people that can bring us together as community and, and be a, a real force to stop some of the very negative forces that are at work at a on us all today. I'm remembering, you know, the aftermath of one major church massacre that took place. And it was a black church and the leaders of the church came out like two days later in the news calling for forgiveness of the murderer. You know, and I just thought, okay, that problematizes a lot of my stereotypes about religion because I don't see this coming out of many other organized communities that I'm aware of. Like, I can't imagine people who had lost their, their children saying, we call together as Christians for forgiveness of these people that are so tortured. I'd say go look at some of what 
Reverend Myers had to say about a lot of those events. He's pretty fired up. As a faith leader, I don't think he's looking for forgiveness. He's looking for change. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't blame anyone for going any any way they of they want with course. that. But I mean, just just for a community to be able to come to that message, I just thought, okay, there that's a hard thing to do. That's a hard thing to do. Yeah. And and the message of forgiveness being something that <clears throat> these leaders are helping bring back into the public eye again. We're all so diverse and all in our different tribes and all in our different places in in our own worlds in this country. And, you know, in the past, it has been leaders who espouse values, when usually religious leaders who have helped organize these social justice movements mm. and, and who have stepped up That's right. um, yeah, into Reverend the vacuum, King so Reverend yeah. King, and so many others, even now. I mean, they're, they're all over the country doing it, and I think we need to support them and recognize they're out there. Yeah. You know, there are many voices. There are many good-hearted people, whatever side of the aisle you're on. If you're in trouble, usually someone, a stranger, will help you. And isn't that the basis of a yeah. lot of uh, what's talked about in, in the big book? Yeah, whatever side of whatever aisle, the, the, the aisle of belief, the aisle of politics, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're all part of the human family. So now, in the time that remains to us, what we're going to do is, this is a fun part of the show where we may go in a completely unexpected direction. The video team of Big Think, the production team, has delved into the archives and picked a clip for us to watch uh, of a past video interview. And it's just kind of like conversation starter, intellectual spin the bottle, as it were. You know, we'll see, we'll see where it goes. Fun. Sounds great. This is Michael Pollan, who uh, has recently written a book on psychedelics, and uh, this is called Mind-Altering Drugs, The Magical History of LSD and Mushrooms. <laughs> is it okay to love it? Yeah. <laughs> in the 60s, everything goes haywire. Uh, and what happens in the 60s is that um, basically the drugs escape the lab and become a very important ingredient in the creation of the counterculture. Um, Timothy Leary has something to do with this. He is a psychologist who uh, ends up at Harvard in 1960. Um, and, but the summer before he gets there, he's, he is introduced to psilocybin while in Mexico and has a, a profound experience. He was by the pool in Cuernavaca, and he said he learned more in those four hours on psilocybin than he had learned in 15 years as a, as a therapist, uh, as a psychologist, and, um, and decides when he gets to Harvard, he's going to start something called the Harvard Psilocybin Project to research this promising drug. Psilocybin had come to the West only a few years before, in 1955, an amateur mycologist by the name of R. Gordon Wasson, who happened to be a vice president of Chase Bank in New York, um, decided that uh, he, he had heard rumors that there were mushroom cults using psychedelic mushrooms in uh, religious observation, observance in uh, Central America. So he, he, he makes a dozen trips to Mexico looking for evidence of this and discovers that it is indeed true and finds a curandera or healer in uh, southern Mexico near Oaxaca willing to give him a psychedelic trip, a psilocybin trip. 
And he writes about this in the pages of, of uh, Life magazine, a big article with a very splashy headline on the cover, you know, the strange growths that give men visions. And it's like 17 pages in the magazine. And this really introduced most Americans to the idea of psychedelics, and certainly to psychedelic mushrooms. So th those are the mushrooms that Timothy Leary is exposed to. He gets to Harvard. He starts doing research, loosely defined, into uh, psilocybin and then LSD when he gets access to that. This is going along fine, but like several people who've studied psychedelics, um, Leary gets intoxicated by them, by the, by the promise, not just to heal, but to change society. And this is a very dangerous um, thought. Uh, and he basically comes to the, con the conclusion that everybody should be on these drugs, that it, it really has enormous social benefit. So he starts giving them to uh, poets and writers and musicians, and the, the, pr the pretense of research gradually fades. Eventually, some students are given the drugs, um, not by Leary, but by Richard Alpert, his, uh, his collaborator, who becomes a Ramdas later. A uh, scandal erupts, um, and they're both tossed out of Harvard. And Leary then becomes a psychedelic evangelist. Uh, you know, turn on, tune in, drop out. Everybody should use acid. We're gonna, if we can turn on four million people, we can blow the mind of America. And it becomes very threatening to the powers that be. I mean, uh, Richard Nixon called Leary the most dangerous man in America. He, uh, he felt that LSD and other drugs were sapping the will of American boys to fight in Vietnam. And he may well have been right. I mean, LSD encourages people to think for themselves, to not accept the frames of, of uh, social values, the games that, that we play uh, socially. and um, and. In important ways, LSD did fuel the uh, counterculture and was very threatening to adult society and to the powers that be. The factoid of the year for me is that a major executive in Chase Bank introduced psychedelic mushrooms to America. It's very hard to imagine that being the case today. That's cognitive dissonance for you right there. <laughs> yeah, it's cognitive, and, and, and yeah, and sort of a relic of a of a of a more innocent age, perhaps. But um, this overlaps in surprising ways, I think, with what we're talking about here with your film. I mean, because first of all, I think that the passion that we're talking about with Timothy Leary and Richard Albert, this kind of zeal to transform society once and for all, to liberate the spirit, you know, that this is a very deeply American thing going back in our history to early charismatic religion and finding another form of expression in evangelical and born again Christianity. I think we've had that forever and I think this is just one version of that. Secondly, I think that this alliance, the fueled in many ways by Nixon and his Republican Party, of these Southern churches with these emerging Republican values as against the counterculture, as against the civil rights movement, that a lot of that emerges in reaction to this. Definitely a push-pull. One gets strong, the other one comes in like a hammer. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. Mm. I'll just say, too, that if anybody from Chase Bank wants to invest in, <laughs> in a documentary about mushroom cults, you know, we'd be willing to investigate. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the, the thing is, too, this is so perfect because the threat to think differently, the threat to challenge authority, the root of the word heretics 
is the freedom to choose, to think differently. Sure. So anyone who's deemed to go outside of the accepted norms and expand your understanding, which is what our characters do, yeah. why we purposely called them heretics, which is it's a very strong word. Wasn't all that long ago being called a heretic got you killed. Yeah, burned um, at the stake. Burned, yeah. at, the yeah. burned yeah. at the stake, you know, so I love this Michael Pollan. Uh, what and, a great you know, clip. Great and clip, actually there's some know. evidence that I've seen, I don't know how, how accurate this is, but interesting, another interesting interesting connection that, you know, the Salem witch trials and the kind of like obsession with witches that that may have been connected with ergot, which ergot, was a, yeah, exactly. like a fungal growth on, on, on grain. wheat or yeah. grain, giving people hallucinations. That Similar to, too. like we started, we couldn't get all the history, American, you know, Protestant history and stuff sure, in, sure. But, but we really dove deep into that arena of Protestantism for a while, <laughs> witch trials and stuff like that, and we realized that's been done really well before. But it is it is fascinating, this whole concept of to think differently, to explore, to open your mind to different ideas yeah. is, um, is not always welcome. Dangerous. Yeah, I mean, going back to the question of authority, like I wonder what, um, and this isn't something you guys really touch on in the film, I don't know if you even know the answer to this, but how the Mayflower Church and churches like that deal with that problem like while being liberal try to address the problem of authority like how that in the sense that how do we keep this from how do we make sure that people can express themselves openly what is heresy within that is there is it possible for somebody there to do something or say something that would be you know that that, that would get them excommunicated for example that's a great question. <laughs> I think we'd have to, you know, all churches, all denominations have their internal hierarchy in politics. We can't answer that, but I would wager to say I'm sure there's a place in which you can't go too far. Reverend Myers sort of answers it in himself where, you know, it would be great if preachers could say what they really thought. And, and in his case, could he do this without getting fired? And, <laughs> and, and we can't speak for him, but I think that just the fact that he had to pose the question, will I get fired, probably answers your question. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, even when he's trying to start the church, I think that was really, was that him? Like he's talking about how there's a, a search committee initially, and he's like, he's like, I consider this a liberal church. And the person he's working with on the search committee is like, I prefer the word conservative. Can you go with that instead? <laughs> And you know, and then he has to explain. Well, liberal actually just means open, and you know, like, like Jesus, <laughs> like hearted. Jesus and stuff. You know, like <laughs> loving people. You know. um, <laughs> and she said, "No, I still pre yeah, prefer." Let's go with conservative. So there's politics at in Arcadia ego. So Janine and Catherine, I think um, I think our psychedelic conversation will be just a small tagline on the rest of this wonderful conversation in the interest of time. But thank you so much for coming in and for your film, American Heretics. Well, and thank you for what you do. Oh, this was great. Truly. Yes. So that is it for another episode of Think Again. I would love to hear from you if you're a longtime listener or you're checking in for the first time. You can find me through my website, Jason Gotts, J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S dot com. Uh, you can sign up for my mailing list and or write me directly an email. And I, 
I think I always respond. I certainly always try to respond. Um, and I think I may have responded to every email I've received, at least, at least the first one. I do my best. Um, so we'll be back next week with something completely different. And I hope you can join me.